Hi, hello, and welcome. This is the Zonecast, where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. And uh, today we have with us on the show uh, Shan McGrill. She is the executive director at uh, Haltech, and she is also a 17-year uh, veteran of uh, Microsoft. Um, hi, Shan. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hello, Salman. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, I'm actually pleased to be back for a second time. Yes, yes. I was just thinking you, you're also a Zonecast veteran now. This is uh, this is your second uh, interview, and thank you for uh, for doing this. And uh, I'm curious to uh, learn about your background. So, can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Uh, well, our professional and personal background. I guess I'll, I'll start with the professional and and give you a little bit of a flavor of what that's been. Um, I started my professional career out of university, and I went to the University of Windsor and majored in business. And uh, from there, you know, I was lucky enough to get my first professional, my first real job with a company called Digital Equipment. And, uh, you know, this will give you a sense of how quickly the technology industry has changed. But at that time, Digital Equipment was one of the largest computing companies in the world. They were um, kind of second to IBM, and IBM was the largest at that point. But I was lucky enough to graduate university and then start my first real job in sales. And um, at that time, I really didn't graduate thinking I wanted to go into sales, but it was the middle of a fairly severe recession when I graduated. And you know, in my mind, a job was better than no job. So I was uh, happy to, to jump in. And what I discovered was that, you know, sales was an absolutely fantastic career. Um, and I, to this day, would say to, you know, any person who is starting, you know, the beginning of their career to make sure you get some sales experience. Um, but that first job, what I was lucky enough to have is join the company and they had a very extensive sales training program for new hires. So we were exposed to all kinds of skills that you need to have in sales. So, you know, presentation skills, communication skills, negotiation. Um, we were also put through some fairly rigorous technology training. So we spent a lot of time understanding, you know, how technology worked, how networks functioned, how to build a solution for a customer. Um, so we went through a lot of this training and it was interspersed between time in a classroom and then time back in our home sales office where we worked with mentors. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate to be in an office at that time in London, Ontario. And uh, I had a whole group of very seasoned sales professionals that took me out to visit accounts. And I was lucky to go to accounts like Labatt's and Kellogg's. And one of the um, large drugstore chains at the time was based in London. Uh, so it was just a fabulous experience. Um, and, you know, over the first couple of years, you know, I gained that experience and had a chance to work with some pretty sizable enterprise kinds of customers and really learned what it took to be successful in sales. And one of the things I learned pretty early is sometimes to be successful, you have to fail. <laughs> and, uh, you know, had my fair share of uh, sales 
that did not go according to plan. So that to me was really probably the the best foundation that um, that I could have had. And then from there, I you know joined a couple of other firms once I figured out that maybe selling hardware was not the place to be, and that software was really where I wanted to start to invest the rest of my career. Uh, so I joined a couple of smaller companies, and that eventually, through um, you know different contacts and networks led me to my Microsoft opportunity, which uh, at that time I happened to be in Ottawa. So I had joined the Microsoft team in a regional office based there. So that's a little bit of the, the professional. Uh, personal, I grew up in southwestern Ontario, so I'm from Essex County and, uh, you know, have, uh, have you know, lots of, lots of great stories about growing up on the farm and, you know, being in a really nice community with great friends, great family, and um, kind of, you know, that experience and having a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know, I just probably said good, good opportunity to, you know, get to know what I was about and what I believed in and lots of supported people around me. Wow, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, I can imagine growing up in a farm must have its own, uh, amazing experiences and, uh, and, uh, so that, mu- that must have been, uh, really amazing. Well, um, one of the things I would say about it, and um, you know, any anybody else who's ever grown up on a farm, you're no stranger to hard work. And I would say <laughs> it probably is one of the things that you know made sure I made sure I went to university and got my post secondary education and invested um, in you know doing something else with my career because I know how backbreaking it is to be out in the fields in the hot sun. <laughs> so no stranger to hard work. Sales calls are pretty easy after that. <laughs> I see. Um, so um, tell us about your experience at Microsoft. You, have, you worked there for about 17 years, mm-hmm. I assume, in different positions and departments. Uh, so can you give us an overview of, of your Microsoft experience? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. In fact, I started, as I mentioned, in the Ottawa office. And at that time, you know, we sort of joked about it as the years went on. But when I joined Microsoft in that office, we could all fit around a boardroom table. So, you know, when I left, that was not even possible. We need to have kind of a, you know, a, a big event kind of room to put everybody in. But at that time, we all fit around a boardroom table. And my first job with Microsoft was as um, a retail sales channel uh, account manager, if you will. So, you know, what I was doing is I was working with the Microsoft retail stores in Ottawa. And my job varied. I did everything from, you know, go out and work with them on demo days. So when Microsoft launched a new game, I would have to sit and spend hours learning the game so that I could then go and demo that at a store, you know, a store event and show that to all kinds of customers. Um, coming through. So I, I spent hours paying flight simulator, flight simulator, age of empire, you know, all of those kinds of games. So, you know, it was kind of interesting for me because to a lot of people that would have been an absolute dream to spend your days learning how to play some of those games. And yet I prior to that came from an enterprise sales background. So I was used to selling to, you know, large banks and large government organizations. So it was kind of weird to me to be sitting in my cubicle learning how to play games, but fun nonetheless. Um, And I would do a lot of work um, and try and innovate with those retail, those retail stores, um, how they put their displays out. And I would take a look with at the analytics with them and identify, you know, what were they selling the most of and when and what 
additional products from Microsoft where customers buying in bundles and things like that, and then helping them, you know, figure out the incentives so that they maximize their profit. So that was the kind of stuff I did when I first started with Microsoft. And then, you know, through uh, time, I then moved into partner management. So one of the things that if you're not familiar with Microsoft, people may not um, think about this, but the majority of what Microsoft does is done with channel partners. And those channel partners might be systems integrators, consulting partners, uh, independent software vendors. So Microsoft has that, you know, that channel that's the largest globally of, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 or so different partners. So at that time, I moved into working with the partners and helping them build solutions on Microsoft technology that they would then take out to customers and, um, you know, make sure that customers were successful with those solutions using Microsoft technology. So that was, you know, at that time, pretty interesting because we were pretty new with technologies like Windows Active Directory and Exchange and SQL databases. So convincing the partners that, you know, they wanted to invest in bringing those solutions to market and training their people on the latest and greatest in Microsoft technology. And you have to keep in mind from a history standpoint at this time, you know, Microsoft wasn't as known and recognized in the enterprise as it is today. So it was kind of like we were battling to become one of the enterprise players. It wasn't, you know, a given the way people tend to think about Microsoft today. At that point, Microsoft really was the consumer company. We were selling games. We were selling, you know, the packages people bought at home. So this was kind of a, a shift to get people to be thinking about us differently. So I did that. And then um, I was also one of Microsoft's first solution specialists. So Microsoft kind of made a strategy to focus on very specific kinds of solutions. And at the time, I was working in the knowledge management space. So we were, you know, early, early versions of things like SharePoint and forms and, you know, how customers could better manage their information and their documents. So I was working again at that point, still in Ottawa, working primarily with the federal government customers. Um, and it was, you know, that was pretty exciting. And we did lots of, you know, fun and, and interesting types of projects. And uh, so then that was then my next big shift in terms of my career at Microsoft was moving from product sales into managing the enterprise consulting services team in Ottawa. Uh, so I went from product to now my job is to make sure that we sell and deliver consulting services to our Microsoft enterprise customers. Uh, so that, you know, I was Still selling, but it was a little bit indirect because my job was to manage the team, make sure we delivered our projects. But then I had to make sure I was selling those projects. And um, the big, you know, one of the big changes between selling consulting services and selling products is in consulting, your revenue is based on billable hours. So, you know, every time that somebody's not busy and you're losing a billable hour, you can't get that back. Whereas, you know, product, if I don't sell it today, I can sell it tomorrow and, you know, still make the same amount of money. So that was kind of a shift in terms of, um, you know, how I had to think about approaching things because you're you're always at it in consulting service. There's never a down moment. And then over time, I, I uh, moved into sort of 
bigger, more responsibility, you know, leadership positions. And um, for a while, stepped, um, you know, continued to go within enterprise services. And then I moved in some into some operational roles on the senior leadership team at Microsoft. And then my last role there, I jumped back into sales and was managing the um, education segment. So I was director for the education segment, which meant we and our team was responsible for selling everything to, you know, uh, K to 12 institutions, colleges, universities, working with the ministries of education across Canada. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Wow. So you've had quite an extensive uh, career at uh, Microsoft. Uh, what what made you end your relationship with the Microsoft? Um, I'm guessing after seven years, you decided to move on. So what what caused the shift? Oh, there. you know what? Uh, you get to a point where, you know, sometimes it's mutual. You know, you need to move on. The company has, you know, other things that they have to do. Um, so that, you know, that was about six years ago now. In fact, I, you know, it might even be this week is my six year anniversary outside of Microsoft. Wow, that's that's uh, amazing. Um, so, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say one of the things that I often share with people is, um, you know, 17 years with Microsoft, I learned a ton and met a ton of people, and it was fabulous experience, and it was a gift to have the chance to work for Microsoft. But now, having been out of Microsoft, and I and I still work with Microsoft Channel Partners and you know in the innovation community, but being out of Microsoft is also a gift, and it gives you a chance to put those skills and experiences and networks to really good use. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess you mentioned when you started working at Microsoft, a lot of your business, at least in Canada, was B two C. Uh, whether it's gaming or whether it's uh, Microsoft solutions. But now we know that they sell a lot of B2B products for businesses and enterprises. So uh, can you walk us through the different B2B products that they sell now? Yeah, well, let me do it as simply as I can, because you, as as you know, Microsoft is, you know, a huge, huge company with lots of products. But yeah. um you know, what I would say is, you know, quickly highlight some of the areas that are most critical for Microsoft in terms of what they sell. And it really is about the cloud, right? So um, when you think about Microsoft these days and what Microsoft really focuses on selling into the enterprise, it's going to be about Microsoft Azure. Um, so you think about the cloud uh, from that perspective, Azure and building solutions on Azure. It's about Office 365 and about Dynamics 365, which really in in the business application. So you can think about uh, cloud, then you can think about business productivity, and then the fourth area would really kind of be the um, productivity, or sorry, the third area would be the productivity side of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you mentioned that uh, you were previously um, at Microsoft working with partners, and these partners would uh, sell Microsoft products to other customers. So uh, definitely one thing that I want to learn about is what were the different strategies and techniques that uh, Microsoft was using or does use to sell or uh, promote their B2B products? Uh, great question. And, and you know, the, the strategies have obviously changed throughout the year, um, throughout the years. And I would say, you know, looking back on it, my reflection would be that Microsoft was always very good at kind of building 
the foundation. So building on the core, working with customers to then make sure that it was deployed, because one of the challenges we had earlier in the years was customers would buy software and then not deploy it. So when it came time to renew their contract, you know, if they hadn't deployed their software, it's a pretty tough conversation to say, oh, would you like to buy some more? Um, so what yeah. Microsoft got a lot better at is making sure that um, in the Salesforce, you know, we we got the base building blocks sold to the customer, make sure that we worked with partners or with our enterprise consulting services to deploy that software um, you know, some of the other strategies, you know, a basic one for all sales forces is to make sure that you have the right incentives in place to drive behavior. So that applied to the sales team. So if they wanted us to focus on, you know, selling cloud technology, our incentive pr- plans would be based on that and would be reflective of that. And the same thing would apply to our partner channels. So all, you know, all sales organizations get really good at selecting the focus and then putting the right incentives in place to drive the desired outcome. So that, that was pretty important. And then as I mentioned, um, partners being so critical to Microsoft, you know, it's a lot of investment in those partners to, to build their skills, to make sure that they have access to the latest and greatest technology so that they can continue to be ready and build those solutions for customers. And then there were other types of strategies, which was to invest in partners so that they could do proofs of concepts for customers or uh, rapid adoption kinds of programs and quick starts. So it enabled partners to, you know, go out to a customer, help the customer try a particular technology and solution in their setting. Um, and then once those milestones are met and the customer was happy, then that paved the way for, you know, future sales. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, it's interesting you mentioned how Microsoft was uh, structuring their incentive plans and how they were helping with deployment so they can get uh, repeat business. So mm-hmm. those are definitely some uh, great uh, sales insights. Yeah, um, and some of the a couple of the other things that I would also call out is, um, you know, Microsoft was is um, very good at you know putting the teams together. Uh, for those enterprise customers. So it's not, you know, it's not this concept of there's just one salesperson and away they go. Um, but you've got an account manager and you've got technical specialists. You've got industry architects who are, you know, really deep at understanding the kinds of solutions that customers in a particular, whether it's banking or automotive or other aspects of manufacturing, what they need and how those solutions need to be architected. So, you know, it's, it's very much a team sport. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, I guess earlier you were uh, referring to some uh, sales uh, failures that you had. So perhaps uh, to make this episode even more insightful, uh, could you share some of your uh, sales failures and uh, some of the lessons learned? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I'm I'm glad you asked it. And I just from a you know confidentiality point of view, I won't be specific about names or anything like that. Um uh-huh. And maybe kind of tied to, you know, what we learned. And I think it would be a few things still very applicable to anybody who's selling today. And that is to make sure that you really, really understand what the customer is looking for. Uh, Because if I look back and say, okay, where did we fail? 
and and where would I have failed? It would have been where I had made some assumptions on what it was the customer was looking for and what they wanted. Um, you know, perhaps didn't qualify them as deeply as should have. And, you know, one one good trait about salespeople is that, you know, you need to be an optimist, but <laughs> sometimes you need to be a little bit more critical of information that you're asking for and the kinds of answers a customer may give you. Um, so if I if I think about where things did not go very well, it would have been making the wrong assumptions, not asking the right questions. And sometimes maybe because I was afraid of what the answer would have been. Um, and then sometimes it's also thinking that your customer really does know what they want when, in fact, they don't. Um, and sometimes you have to take a little bit more leadership to show them or help them discover exactly what it is that they want and challenge what they're telling you to make sure that it's correct and that you once you're correct and know that what they want is really defined, then you can put together the solution pieces and bring the right people to the table. And then I think the other thing that, um, you know, where I had failed and what I now know much better is sometimes you have to just trust your gut. You know, data is great. Analytics are great. But there are times you just have to trust your gut. And when a when a sales campaign is not going in the right direction, there's you just feel like there's something missing or there's some you know wrong information. You got to stop and go back and investigate that. And I you know, that's a big lesson that I was lucky enough to learn early on is, you know, if if it doesn't feel right in your gut, no matter what the data says, you know, go back and check it again. Uh huh. That's 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 interesting. Um what was the average um, average uh, sales cycle at Microsoft and what was the average uh, deal size? Oh, you know what? That's a tough one because it really depends on what customer segment that you're working in. So, you know, for example, I worked um, for a, a big chunk of my time with the federal government. So you can mm-hmm. imagine that the federal government sales cycles very, very long. Um, yeah. You know, so they can, you know, they could be, you know, years, right? That would not be unheard of for a sales cycle mm-hmm. to go on for years. Um, and then in other cases, sometimes there was a very specific need and it needed to happen really fast because there was a compelling event and it could, you know, could be very quick. In those cases, the deal sizes would be smaller and, and fall within the limits of the federal government uh, procurement regulations. So maybe $40,000. And then in other cases, you know, they could be, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it really depends. And then if you're working with other other customer segments, um, you know, they could be anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to millions. It really, really sort of depends. And sometimes they're quick turnarounds. And uh, other times, like I said, it could be years before you land the right kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And for these uh, potential customers, um, what was the approach? Was it like an inbound approach or was there like an outbound approach where there was, a, let's say, um, cold calling and uh, and uh, field visits and whatnot? So wh- what was the approach like? Is Was it inbound or outbound? Uh, primarily for the enterprise sales, it was outbound. Um, and the way we had worked is you would have your, you know, your specific set of customers so you'd be assigned a group of customers 
And then, you know, from there you would, you know, go into your, you know, uh, your profiling and your qualification and your prospecting uh, process. So for enterprise, it tended to be designed more that way. And then when you get into more of the, you know, small, mid-sized market, uh, you know, then it it's a lot more marketing focused. So marketing is there to help generate the top of the funnel. Um, and then there's a specific set of processes that then sort of help guide customers through to hopefully closing a deal. Mm-hmm. So so let's say if if you ha- if they have to find new customers, new or new potential customers, and if they're using an outbound approach, they would I'm guessing pick up the phone and call companies. Essentially, I guess I guess uh, was that the approach? Yeah, yeah, essentially that would be it. So, you know, you would do your homework to to figure out, you know, within that company what department, um, you know, what types of solutions they might be looking for. You would do things like, you know, comb through the case studies available and look for something that would be appealing to that customer that might help them, you know, generate revenue or save money or deal with some of the compliance issues that they had to deal with. So you'd go through that process. You would talk with your partners, understand what they were doing, what their solution offering looked like, figure out how you might co-sell with those partners into some of these accounts. Um, so you do a lot of prep homework before you start the outreach so that once you you know picked up that phone or connected with that customer um, in a, some other way, shape, or form, you had a really good story for them. And one of the things um, that at over time at Microsoft, at one point we were fairly good at selling to the CIO, um, but not as great selling into other areas of business. So, you know, that was a transition that I was at Microsoft for is, you know, how do we get better at selling to, you know, the chief marketing officer or the CFO or, uh, you know, plant operations? You know, we had to, to kind of learn how to change our message and find out what was most important and compelling to them. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess one of the complexities of B2B sales is is uh, when sitting to a potential client, uh, multiple stakeholders are involved in that organization. You know, there are people who will use the product. There, are, There is the person who approves the purchase decision. So you have to uh, be able to communicate to all these stakeholders and uh, persuade them to uh, sell, uh, per- persuade them to make a sale. So mm-hmm. it, it is a challenging task and it kind of makes the sales cycle longer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, it's been a little while since I read uh, the Challenger sale, but that's exactly what they get into. And I, and I can't remember the numbers offhand, but it's, you know, sort of three, three to five times more people involved in the sales process within an enterprise now compared to, you know, what it might have been 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So it's become even more complex now then. Yeah, uh, more. there's more people involved, and then the average sales cycle has increased. Wow. Um, and you you mentioned that you've sold hardware and software. So are there any differences in selling these two, or is it pretty much the same sales approach uh, which one did you find to be more difficult to sell? Um, I would say at the time I sold hardware, it was fairly easy, right? So hardware is fairly contained. And, you know, at that time, PCs were kind of taking off. So everybody was looking at and buying PCs. So it was, you know, 
it was more about the speeds and feeds. So it was easy because, you you know, here's the machine, here's how fast it goes, here's the CPU, the graphics card, the whatever. Um, so it was fairly contained, and that was the easy part to explain to customers. The hard part was because it became so commodity, you were always yeah. battling on price. So, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, so the ability to demonstrate value became increasingly difficult, and um, that's sort of, you know, for me, part of the reason why software was so much more interesting is, you know, software is really about solving a, a specific problem, and I loved the discovery process with customers, like what are the pain points? What are you trying to do? You know, if you could solve that, you know, what would you accomplish and what would you gain? Like to me, that's what's so much more interesting about software. And, um, you know, I, I find software more interesting. Some people may say it's, you know, it's more or less challenging. I, I, I don't know if I would say it's more or less challenging. I would say just to me, it's more interesting. So maybe that makes it easier to sell. Yeah, I guess I guess the whole discovery process and trying to find a solution for the customer's pain points that that would be an interesting process to go through, mm-hmm. and it would definitely involve communication and and needs assessment and consultation. So that would be an interesting process with like with hardware. I guess it's uh, things have become more commoditized and. And, you know, people can uh, definitely do a lot of research. So maybe so there, there are definitely some differences, as you mentioned. Um, one, one thing I definitely want to touch on is, is uh, now in 2020, we are in the whole pandemic era of things. And uh, business and economy has been severely affected. Um, companies might be spending less. And companies might have less money to spend on things on B2B products. So, um, do you see a shift, a big shift in, in enterprise spending? And, uh, are there any uh, new sales strategies that can be employed, that can be utilized to account for that? I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, and in some ways it's changed and in some ways it hasn't. So, um, you know, the first part of the question about uh, spending. So it, it's, again, an it depends answer. So depending on, you know, who who the client is and in what segment, um, it, it has meant a decrease in their spending, of course, or maybe much more focus on what they spend. But I would still say they're spending money. Right. They still have problems that they need to solve. Um, and again, depending on who the customer is in the segment, you know, some of them may be spending more money than they did before. Right. If you're in life sciences and healthcare, you know, those areas, they, they're increasing their spending. Um, you know, some companies who have been, you know, online and doing business online, they may be spending more. Um, so you, you have to kind of really think about who that statement applies to um, and what, again, it comes back to, you know, really getting to know your customer and understanding how a downturn in the economy, a crisis or the current pandemic impacts their business. Is it going to be something that, you know, increases demand for their business or is it going to be something that's really going to cause them pain? Um, so, you know, first thing that hasn't changed is you have to know the customer and you have to know the problems that they're experiencing. 
Um, so that's not really any different. And then from there, you know, it's back to really just trying to figure out how best to solve the customer's problem. And I think, you know, now that we're in this current era and, you know, we're, we're, we've gone through this kind of survival feeling mode and now we're kind of looking ahead, especially here in Ontario and we're starting to think about phase three, um, you know, hopefully getting into thrive mode. I think the the things that haven't necessarily changed, but are requiring much more focus from salespeople and working with their customers are making sure that you gain customer trust, right? You know, if customers trust you, and you can have really in-depth conversations with them. I mean, that's that's really where you want to be. And I I hesitate to use the term trusted advisor because it, it for a while got really overused. But you really have to show up for your customer. You have to have the credentials they're looking for. You have to be reliable. You have to do what uh, you say you're going to do. You have to be open and honest with them, even if it means delaying a sale or foregoing a sale in light of a bigger picture. Um, so customer trust hasn't changed, but I think really it gets much more focus. And then the importance of educating customers. You know, customers can go online. They can find out, you know, it's got this feature, it's got this spec, but really helping them to learn what it means for their business or what it means for impacting their industry. Uh, so that really hasn't changed. We've seen a lot of that happening in terms of the way content marketing has been working over the last number of years. So still really important. And then I think another piece that remains important and even more so is the the fact that customers, you know, they're not talking to a salesperson, um, you know, until they're very, very far down that decision making process. So you have to be thinking about how do I have others tell my story for me? So will the last customer I worked with tell a positive story to, you know, his colleague, the CFO or the uh, CIO or the CMO, you know, when they're together in the places that they meet, will they recommend what I sold them? I mean, and I think if you can accomplish that, um, you know, in this current situation as well as forward, I think you're in a pretty good spot. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, on a personal note, how has the pandemic affected you, and how you're managing this uh, time? Uh, on a you know on a personal note, I, I think uh, it has been uh, it's been interesting, right? So it's uh, for us at home. It's my husband and I. So we you know we've both been working from home, and so parts of that seem fairly normal. We've been we were talking about the fact that uh, we've really since we've both been involved in working in technology um you know we've been working at home different times probably since the 90s right so early 90s we were you know had the early technology dial up modems you name it so the working from home piece isn't that new um but i think what is really new is going this long without connecting with with our you know our partners our clients our friends our family in person so that's taken some getting used to, but um, I, I would say that I feel very lucky on a personal note, but I also feel extremely lucky with the team and all of our supporters and sponsors and partners at Haltech. They've just been fantastic in making this transition into working online and finding the best ways possible to support our clients. So feel pretty lucky there too. 
Uh-huh. And previously you were living and working in Ottawa, and now you live and work in Halton in the Oakville or Burlington area. So which which uh, place did you do you like the most? <laughs> Well, of course, I'm going to say Halton. <laughs> but I know I, you know, I loved Ottawa. It was fantastic. I, um, not going to lie, hated the winters. So, you know, I got to give it up for Halton. Um, it's a fabulous community and our winters are much more gentle. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Perfect. <laughs> uh, perfect, Shan. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights and experiences and lessons. Uh, from your background so i'm sure this will be very helpful for the uh, audience so thank you so much uh, for taking the time and thank you i really uh, really appreciate the discussion absolutely uh listeners uh, i hope you enjoyed this episode and you find it to be engaging and insightful and uh, you'll get a chance to learn from my shan's experiences and thank you so much for listening to zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes